If you look at the terms of these contracts, these were very carefully drafted in a way that normally we would not expect an employer to draft a contract with virtually no out for the employer. I mean, it it's almost like it's a setup. This is Lawyer to Lawyer. The award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast. And yes, they are attorneys. Bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. My co-host, Jay Craig Williams, is off today. And today's show is sponsored by Clio, Huron Consulting Group, Landy Insurance, and Top Class Actions. Well, with uh, outraged taxpayers reeling from the the news, uh, still reeling from the news that uh, American Insurance Group, uh, AIG, had awarded its employees bonuses in the in the aftermath of four federal bailouts and a, and a spiraling economy. Uh, there was outrage all over the place. Uh, some of the AIG employees agreed to return some fifty million of the one hundred sixty five million in bonuses they received. Uh, This week on Capitol Hill, U.S. Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner and Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke appeared before Congress. Uh, Geithner asked for new powers over financial companies, while Bernanke testified that he had wanted to uh, sue AIG to cancel the the bonuses, but was told that he couldn't do that. Uh, In a primetime news conference earlier this week, President Obama answered questions from a sea of reporters on the status of the economy and AIG. Before we get started with our guests, we're going to listen to just a brief clip from uh, President Obama, who, uh, of course, is a lawyer, talking about AIG. Let's hear that clip. There was a lot of outrage and finger-pointing last week, and much of it is understandable. I'm as angry as anybody about those bonuses that went to some of the very same individuals who brought our financial system to its knees, partly because it's yet another symptom of the culture that led us to this point. Why did you wait? Why did you wait days to come out and express that outrage? It I, seems like the action is coming out of New York and the Attorney General's office. It, it took you days to come public with Secretary Geithner and say, "Look, no. we're outraged." Why did it, it take so long? It, it, it took us a couple of days because I like to know what I'm talking about before I speak. Well, judging from President Obama's reaction, the legal issues behind uh, AIG's bonuses uh, and uh, these contracts are somewhat complicated. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at this issue in more depth. We're going to talk to uh, two different experts in the field of contract law and uh, uh, try and flesh this out a little bit more. So joining us first today is Franklin G. Snyder, a professor of law at Texas Wesleyan Law School in Fort Worth, where he teaches contracts, business organizations, and international business transactions. He is editor-in-chief of Contracts Prof, the uh, blog that is the official blog of the Association of American Law Schools section on contracts. Before uh, going into teaching, he was a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Latham & Watkins, 
where he represented high-technology clients in litigation and transactions. He's previously taught at the law school at the University of Notre Dame, Temple University, and the University of Idaho. Welcome to the show, Professor Frank Snyder. Thank you. And joining us next is Professor Deborah W. Post, Professor of Law at Toro College, Jacob Fuchsberg School of Law, located on Long Island in New York, uh, where she teaches contracts and corporations and partnerships. She's the author of the book, Contracting Law, a casebook on contracts with Amy Castelli and Nancy Oda. Professor Post is the Interim Dean for Academic Affairs and Faculty Development at Toro and is finishing out the second year of her two-year term as co-president of the Society of American Law Teachers, an organization of law professors who identify themselves as progressives. Welcome to the show, Deborah Post. Thank you. Glad to be here. And uh, I always hope I didn't mangle the names or the introductions just too much. Uh, but uh, uh, Frank, let's start with you. And uh, okay. the, a lot of the discussion this week uh, has been around the question of what could have been done and what should have been done. And I know you've written about this on your blog, and I know that both of you uh, have, have written uh, opinions about this uh on the New York Times website uh, last week, uh, but but Frank, let's start with your your perspective on this. I mean, should something have been done about these contracts, or were uh, everybody's hands tied? Well, uh, it, to some extent, that depends on whether or not you think that there was some reason to enter into these contracts in the first place. Um, uh, and, you know, there seems to be a difference of opinion on that. Um, we have a company that's got $1.6 trillion of the kind of financial instruments that very few of us can understand, uh, and the issue is how do you go about preserving that and getting some value out of that, and how do you get people who are willing to do that? Now, that's a policy question. Should we uh, essentially retain these employees? Should we pay them a substantial amount of money? Uh, what we wound up doing is, is that AIG and the Treasury Department apparently agreed that we needed to have those folks, and the way to get them to stay was to offer them this money. Um, it could have very easily uh, said, "No, we want you to continue to work for you know whatever you know reasonable salary we think the taxpayers would buy, and uh, if you don't like it, leave." Um, the trouble comes in when you the federal government comes in subsequently, and is sort of the beneficiary of uh, these contracts, having taken over a, an ownership stake in the company, uh, and now the feds want to undo those employment contracts. So um, it, we could have, uh, it was entirely possible not to have uh, agreed to the bonuses in the first place, uh, in which case the employees probably would have left. It was certainly possible when the feds put the bailout money in to say, look, this is conditional on all of your executives agreeing to give up those bonuses, in which case the executives probably would have left. Um, and then there's you know any number of ways that the government can try after the fact to get the money. So um, it, it's just it's an unusual situation because it's backwards. Here usually you've got bad employers who are withholding money from deserving employees, uh, and here you've got you know, allegedly bad employees. Uh, getting money off this uh, you know, innocent insurance company. So 
it's an unusual situation from a legal perspective. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, as you point out, this is a backward situation, and and the laws uh, tend to favor employees in these circumstances. I mean, at least the statutory laws. I mean, you, you talk about. I, I think uh, uh, Chairman Bernanke alluded to the the double penalty under Connecticut law for. Uh, I, I assume he's a, a alluding to the non-payment of wages law in Connecticut, which is uh, if if you don't pay employees what or what is contractually due them, you can you can be subject to uh, a, a, a double uh, penalty. Yeah, I mean that uh, was absolutely that was designed to um, encourage employers not to withhold the wages of employees who leave because you know obviously if somebody's going to quit, you just hold their last paycheck and make them sue you, and if you lose, then you give them your last paycheck. Mm-hmm. So the goal was to provide some incentive. I understand. I know you're in Massachusetts. I understand that the rule there is three times. That's the, right. Uh, uh, the wage amount. So, yeah, I, that's that's what's complicating all this. We have a lot of contract doctrines that were designed to deal with certain kinds of situations. Uh, that just uh, this is just something new, something really different, and we're all trying to figure out uh, how to make sense of it. Except I have a sense that when these contracts were drafted, they knew or they were able to predict what was going to happen in the future in a certain sense. For instance, uh, the the letter to the editor yesterday um, by the person who was resigning from AIG, Jake DeSantis, mm-hmm. the right. vice president, you know, he indicates that he had been working on dismantling the company for 12 months. And most of us became aware of the meltdown and the credit default swap problem, you know, around the time of the presidential election, around October, although in February of 2008, apparently, that was when the head of that section of AIG quit and when they had uh, notice of the fact that they were going to have tremendous losses. So in some respects, you think... If you look at the terms of these contracts, these were very carefully drafted in a way that normally we would not expect an employer to draft a contract with virtually no out for the employer. I mean, it it's almost like it's a setup, you know, that knowing what's coming down the road, um, there was an agreement to try and protect um, certain of their employees and to provide them with a level of uh, compensation that was problematic in the first place and that they knew probably would generate criticism. You know, I I just want to take a moment and say that I think um, part of the discussion of whether or not you can get out of these contracts has to do with whether or not there have been changed circumstances, which allows you sometimes to avoid performing a contract. And, you know, changed circumstances in contract doesn't come close to describing the moment that we're in. We're, we're sort of in a apocryphal <laughs> moment. And it's a moment when there is a serious readjustment of expectations on the part of a segment of the economy that became accustomed to profits that were, you know, huge but illusory, and salaries that could only be considered reasonable if you believe those profits were real. And, it, you know, the the unrest that we see has something to do with the fact that the other half of our um, um, population, or actually much more of it, 80, 90 percent of it, has been living for decades uh, with a sort of downward mobility and um, as a consequence of downsizing and a demand for increase increased productivity, and they've had to give back health benefits and pensions and cost of living increases, and they've experienced, you know, 
um, social and emotional vertigo as they went downhill in their lives. So you understand the anger that the president referred to, and you understand the, I would say probably, um, impolitic actions by Congress, too, in trying to tax these uh, bonuses. But, but maybe it's all part of this huge readjustment we have to make in this economy. Does, does this rise to the level of a, a force majeure or, or something along those lines? I'd be inclined to say so, but probably Frankie wouldn't agree with me, would you? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with you, at least uh, from a legal <laughs> perspective on changed circumstances either. Um, I think that you could have had a force majeure defense if Congress passed a law that said you, AIG, as a recipient of federal money, may not pay anybody more than the average wage of a public school teacher in Detroit. Okay, They could, they could pass that law, and then AIG would have a force majeure defense, uh, and then you'd have to go after the government to argue that it was some kind of constitutional taking. The government didn't do that. Uh, the government, in fact, said, okay, go ahead, and let's, let's continue these bonuses, presumably because they were worried that if, if those folks left, and I understand now the top two folks over at the French division have, have left, along with Mr. DeSantis, uh, the worry is if they left, uh, that there wouldn't be people who could keep that $1.6 trillion from imploding further. Um, so a force majeure would have been good if, if somebody had actually passed a law or regulation. Change circumstances is difficult because the, the doctrine of change circumstances suggests that something has to have happened after the contract that was unexpected and not foreseen uh, at the time of the contract. And as Deb just, just pointed out, uh, people have known for a long time this company is going in the tank. I, the, the whole reason AIG says it put that retention plan in place was because everybody knew the company was sliding down and... Uh, it was certainly going to be a risk that the uh, company would get, um, it would become insolvent. So uh, I just don't agree that from a legal perspective, if we're using it in the sense that we teach our students, that we've got a, a, a changed circumstance here. Well, let me disagree with that a little bit, okay? Because I think that if these contracts were created, let's say in February, when they learned that there were enormous losses and that they had some problems with their division, at that time, I don't think that they foresaw the entire global, worldwide meltdown or understood the magnitude, right, of the loss that they were going to experience or that the economy um, would experience or the extent to which the federal government would have to intercede and the amount of money that would be involved in bailing them out. I think, I think perhaps in February... That was not foreseeable of what was going to happen in, what, September 2008, when there was a complete meltdown, might not have been foreseeable. Something was foreseeable, but whether or not that was foreseeable, I'm not sure. So, so given where we are now and, the, and just the magnitude of the economic crisis, maybe you could argue, maybe you could argue, right, that this was not foreseeable. I would say... Would you have predicted this a year ago, Frank? Would I have predicted that, that AIG that, would melt down or, or what would happen? Or that, that, that AIG would be part of an entire sort of global crash, which would require the kind of interventions we've seen by governments around the world 
Well, I'm not sure that I would have foreseen the level of government involvement, but I mean, people have no, I mean, many people have, have been opining for years that there was a huge uh, bubble in the housing market, that there were potential problems coming with subprime mortgages, that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were um, in serious trouble. And, you know, I mean, I've lived through quite a few financial crises, and, and it's not unknown that these things happen. I mean, you remember uh, um, we had the same issue that we're talking about here. I don't know if you recall back when American Airlines went in the tank. Uh, and they issued retention bonuses, as I recall, to keep all of their senior executives around while they were getting reorganized, which caused no end of outrage, um, at least here in the, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where they're headquartered. Um, but the argument was, we need to keep these people because if all of our executives leave, we can't turn the company around. So, I mean, these things happen. And the scale of the government um, intervention is unprecedented, but it's not different in kind from what we've done uh, many times before. Isn't the, the, the plan document that I'm looking at here is dated December 1st, 2007, and, and it says that one of the objectives of the plan is to recognize the uncertainty that the unrealized market valuation losses in AIG's super senior credit derivative uh, and originally rated AAA cash CDO portfolios have created for AIG's employees and consultants. I, I mean, doesn't that say in so many words, uh, th things are drastically uncertain and we want to provide for our employees here? Well, it does say that they knew that there were financial difficulties and that they uh, recognized that they were confronting a situation where there was going to be tremendous losses for AIG. I, I don't think they really anticipated, uh, nobody anticipated the kind of meltdown that we've seen. And, and I just want to back up for a moment because I think we rescued the automobile industry or Chrysler in the past right? We lived through the savings and loan scandal where we had to create government entities or institutions to deal with uh, the failure of those um, institutions, those financial institutions, right? But at the same time that we were doing that, we were busy deregulating the securities industry and the banking industry, you know, repealing the Glass-Steagall Act, passing the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act, which makes it virtually impossible to bring um, a private uh, suit against uh, companies that may have committed securities fraud. We, uh, you know, we have a Supreme Court that balked at expanding a private right of action by citizens or investors. We had, and then we had the disaster at Enron, which apparently did not in any way impress on anyone that we had a serious problem with our sort of economic infrastructure. And Sarbanes-Oxley did not prevent what the current crisis is, right, the meltdown that we're experiencing right now. And I just think that what's happening now is qualitatively different from the sort of individual crises, whether it's the the airline industry or the, you know, the Chrysler or the savings and loan. This is so widespread, right, and affects so many different aspects of our economy and uh, has such ramifications for everyone. And, and, I, and I think it's, it is qualitatively different. But what bothers me is that nobody thought about modifying these contracts. They only thought about drafting something which would bind the company to paying these 
very large, enormous bonuses. And and I do think that one of the issues is whether or not these employees were actually worth that much and how much bad judgment was involved um, in locking in the company when it knew it was going to have to seek um, or might might be going into bankruptcy. So... Yeah, and, and that's one of the great things that we don't know. We have no idea how many people there are out there who can successfully hedge a $1.6 trillion bunch of derivatives. It may be that you could get 100 people at GS-15 wages to do that. Maybe you can't. I mean, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, maybe you can call an accounting firm and get some temps in there and you know, see if they can straighten the mess out and figure it all out. <laughs> Uh, for much less money. I'm not. I think that's an overstatement, Frank, but that's okay. No, I'm just, yeah, I, I don't know where you get these folks. The ones who are working at uh, hedge funds are making vastly more money than these folks at AIG. I mean, Jim Simons made, what, $2.5 billion last year? Soros made, like, uh, $1.1 off his hedge fund. Uh, I mean, these are, you know, in, in this world, fairly small potatoes, and they may not be worth it. These may, these people may be incompetent idiots who um, are running the company to the ground. We don't know that. Uh, but that doesn't, the question of whether it was wise to enter into the contract uh, is a separate issue from, uh, is there a contractual right of payment now, and now what do we do with it? I mean, you, you know, and I know that there are, People enter into stupid contracts every day, and usually stupid contracts are enforced. And one of the things that, that I'm, I'm puzzled about, that the, I agree with you, certainly the extent of the government's effort to try and reinflate this bubble, um, to, to try to make everybody a whole, is kind of unprecedented. And it does affect everyone, but then that would suggest that every contract out there uh, is potentially infected by change circumstances. And that, to me, seems to be a a potentially serious um, argument. Well, Frank and Deborah, we need to take a short break. Uh, Deborah, we'll hear from you on that when we return, so stay with us. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Huron Consulting Group's legal consulting practice, a leading provider of consulting and business services to corporations and law firms, helps align strategy, people, processes, and technology to meet the goals of the organization. We also help prepare and plan for all phases of discovery in a legal dispute or investigation. We establish an effective records management program that creates cost savings and enhanced productivity while minimizing risk. Check out Velocity, the first comprehensive e-discovery solution. For more information, visit us at www.huronconsultinggroup.com. When it comes to protecting your legal practice, how confident are you that your professional liability insurance provides the best possible coverage for the best possible price? 
At the Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency, we know that law firms insured with us can answer yes on both counts. Visit our website at www.landy.com for a convenient online application or call us at 800-336-5422 for prompt and personal attention. TopClassActions.com ethically connects attorneys to potential clients. At TopClassActions.com, attorneys can review submissions, locate effective plaintiffs for new lawsuits, or advertise their settlement to add more claimants. With membership in our attorney network, you review complaints submitted by Top Class Actions viewers, and it's free to try. No credit card required for the free membership. Go to TopClassActions.com slash attorney. That's TopClassActions.com slash attorney. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi, and we're talking about the AIG contracts with Franklin Snyder, professor of law at Texas Wesleyan Law School and editor-in-chief of Contracts Prof blog, and Professor Deborah W. Post, professor of law and the interim dean for academic affairs and faculty development at Toro College. And Deborah, I I wanted to ask you about uh, your uh, commentary in the New York Times. It was a a running uh, series in the New York Times uh, with opinions about this, and and both of you contributed to that. But uh, Deborah, yours seemed to be somewhat of a, well, a common sense suggestion that that they could perhaps go back to the bargaining table and and talk about this similar to the way uh, it would happen in a collective bargaining environment. Is that that kind of what you're saying? I'm saying that at the point at which you had, um, you know, Liddy assume responsibility uh, and uh, take over management of the company, I do not understand why they didn't say to those employees two things. One, you know, I'm not requiring you to take a dollar as a salary and then promising you $700,000 or a million dollars as a bonus. Why don't we renegotiate your salary and give you a reasonable salary under the circumstances, under the kind of economic constraints? You know, there's economic exigencies at this time. And one of the things that's very disturbing here is that, you know, uh, Mr. DeSantis said nobody ever asked him to renegotiate the contract, that they were never approached about modifying the terms of the contract. Clearly, these were circumstances where that probably should have happened. It should have happened. And we know, we know that there's a kind of dual standard that's operating here, that people who are blue-collar workers are asked all the time, right, to give up their cost of living increases and the and the raises that they expected to have uh, and the benefits that they have in order to sustain their companies. That's just part of the argument. If you want a job, you want to stay in business, here's what we have to do. We all have to sacrifice. And that means you, right, union worker who's at GM, right? But now we're being told that it is somehow unfair to ask these high-level executives at a company that we've decided cannot fail because it's too big to fail, to give up or to modify their expectations in terms of what their remuneration should be. And I I don't think the government is trying to reinflate the bubble, uh, Frank. I think what we're trying to do is stabilize our economic system. And I'll go back to my original point, which is I think that in this moment in time, we may all have to adjust in a serious way our expectations in terms of, you know, 
how our economy operates, what kind of profits you can expect to make, both from your investment in securities and in real estate, and uh, what reasonable behavior is, and what kind of salaries we deserve, right, when we work for these companies. That, that was my point. Well, I, and I don't disagree with you at all uh, on the issue that it, there would have been no problem going back to these folks and saying, we want you to take less money. Um, now, the, the trouble is, of course, that the way this worked is that the board of directors published this plan, which became part of the work contract of the employees when they showed up for work the next day. They could have unilaterally withdrawn that at any point, as long as they hadn't uh, uh, led someone to stay with the promise of a bonus. So yeah, you could have asked them to renegotiate, but I think the issue is that uh, they would have left, or at least there was worry that they would have left. Uh, and if, if you're trying to get them to stay, um, going to them and saying, you know, you're getting way too much money here. Um, we think you ought to take less. And instead of, and let me, let me mention this point, you said they could have gone to a salary. If this thing had been called a deferred salary, I doubt that there would have been this kind of outrage. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people are confusing this with performance bonuses and profit bonuses and everything. But if you just said, hey, we're just going to pay you, I don't know, $10,000 a week, $20,000 a week um, to um, stick around and work for us, that doesn't ensure that the employee stays around. That just ensures that the employee shows up until the employee gets another job. The whole point of the retention bonus is to cause a forfeit if the employee leaves. Uh, and that's why, it's, that's why it's structured that way. Uh, and that may be a bad idea. Again, it may be that you could find all kinds of people to do this stuff. But that's, that's why they did it, and I assume that's why they didn't go back and renegotiate, because they thought that that was fair pay for the value that they were getting. Now, you know, people have hated bankers since J.P. Morgan, and they hate <laughs> the amount of money that bankers make, and, and they hate insurance companies, and they hate rich people uh, who don't, you know, make movies or play baseball. Uh, but and so you, you throw all that together with people losing their houses, and you get this perfect storm of outrage. But you have to separate the outrage from the practical question of what do we do here? If we've got one one point six trillion dollars worth of those assets, and these people can do a one percent better job than the people that you bring in. That's 16, what, $16 billion that the taxpayers aren't going to have to pay. And that might be worth $180 million in bonuses. I don't know. I, I, I can't make that calculation. I know that AIG did. The Treasury looked at it and thought it was okay. And then everybody started backtracking when, uh, when people got outraged. Well, here's the thing that's another point in terms of modifications. When we talk about whether or not it was possible to modify the contracts, there's one modification that did take place. All right, that they accelerated the payment of these bonuses, a quarter of the bonuses, right, due under the contracts. And yeah, that, then, is, that is peculiar. Well, you know, you ask yourself, well, wh- what is that all about, that they're accelerating the payments? Not asking the employees to renegotiate it in light of the circumstances, but actually speeding up the, as if they could get in under the wire and nobody would notice, right, that these bonuses were being paid. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I, I don't quite understand why a company, 
right, why a company would have even agreed to these terms. I don't know of any employees who could have negotiated the kind of terms that are in this. So who have that kind of leverage. And, and, I, and I disagree in terms of whether or not there are people out there. I think there are many, many, right, people who probably don't have 11, 12, 13 years of experience in the market, but experience that in the end, right, turned out to show that some of the underlying assumptions they made about the operation of the market, those assumptions were incorrect. So... Um, I don't know. I think we probably just disagree on that, Frank, in terms of whether you could find replacement workers. Well, on that note, I I, I hate to say we're almost near the end of our time here, and I I do want to give each of you an opportunity to to wrap up and and kind of give your concluding thoughts on this. So let's do that now. And, And Frank, let me start with you and ask you to give me your... Your wrap-up thoughts, and also, if you'd like to tell our listeners uh, how to follow up with you, please do that as well. Uh, well, I appreciate that. Um, I think that what we're dealing with is um, uh, a difficult situation. There are moral issues, which are, should people make this much money when other people are not, uh, when other people are losing their homes? There are political issues. Whose fault is it? Who should have done what? Uh, there are legal issues. I mean, uh, could you have gotten double damages uh, under the Connecticut statute? Uh, but the ones that are probably the biggest right now are are the policy issues, which is what um, what are we doing going forward, and how, what is our treatment of these bonuses going to uh, do to our ability to bail out banks and other institutions in the future? Because there are going to be more of these. Uh, and the next group of people, uh, the next time your bank begins to get uh, insolvent, you need to get out of that uh, out of the place quickly. You know, take the money and run, and don't try to stick around uh, <laughs> because you may find your agreements entirely um, renegotiated. Um, now, if uh, you can uh, follow uh, my blog or the uh, AALS contract section blog, contracts prof not me in particular, uh, has been covering this. Uh, you can find that. Um, I don't even know the web address, but if you put contracts prof into Google, it'll be the first thing that comes up. It's lawprofessors.typepad.com slash contracts prof underscore blog. <laughs> I always just put it in Google. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's the easier way. Uh, well, thanks a lot. And, and Deborah, uh, how about your final thoughts? Well, uh- my thoughts on this are very simple. I think that we're in a moment when we have to step back and sort of examine uh, the legal infrastructure for our economy and decide what we're going to do. I mean, we have to think about things like whether or not we're going to give companies like American Express the option of becoming a bank, right? Is it dangerous to combine banking and businesses that trade in securities? Are we, compar- you know, I think AIG, which has profitable insurance companies, and then it had that huge credit uh, a default swap business that put everything at risk should make us think about the relationship between regulated industries and unregulated industries and what we want to regulate and how we want to regulate them. And also, you know, whether the government should be in the business of doing all of this or whether or not it is appropriate to use other legal mechanisms like giving uh, shareholders, uh, you know, more right to sue and to police the um, honesty of the the companies that in which they are investing, but 
But the other thing is I think we have to we also have to think about the way our market is structured and the amount of money that we're pouring into the market these days with our pension funds and other things. Anyway, that's that's uh, a very broad <laughs> sweeping not a contract law exclusively answer to uh your question. Well, if I could say one thing, I agree with everything that you just said, Deborah. Those are those are exactly the issues we need to be thinking about right now. Well, let's end on that note. <laughs> uh, a perfect note. Uh, Deborah. was there uh, any contact information or a website or anything else you wanted to point our listeners to? Well, people who want to reach me can reach me at saltlaw.org or at my email at Toro, which is Deborah P., the long Deborah D-E-B-O-R-A-H-P, at torolaw.edu. And Toro is T-O-U-R-O-L-A-W dot E-D-U. And I'll put in a plug for her uh, her book, which is a very good for those of you who want to get some good background information and contracts. Uh, definitely check it out. Thank you. Very good. Well, uh, Frank and Deborah, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. This was a, a really fascinating discussion. And uh, as usual, there's not enough time to, uh, to get into all the uh, parameters of it, but uh, really appreciated your time. Uh, for our listeners, I'd like to uh, remind them that they can find this and all of our archive shows at the LegalTalkNetwork.com, and we're also in the podcast library on iTunes. That does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer, and uh, look forward to talking to you all again next week. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.